Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, it's Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. It's Tuesday, October 11th. Did you hear the big news from the White House in the last few days on cannabis? President Biden announced that he will pardon anyone convicted of simple marijuana possession by a federal court. He also wants cannabis removed from the list of so-called Schedule One drugs like heroin that are seen under federal law as having no medical uses. Heroin and weed were actually in the same, are actually in the same categorization under federal law. Ironically, some people say that change could complicate the burgeoning industry of legal cannabis dispensaries. We'll talk about that. Here in New York State, 175 such dispensaries are expected to get licenses any week now under the state's new legalization law. Governor Hochul is also reported to be looking for better tests to be developed to detect driving while high on weed, nothing like the blood alcohol level for uh, driving while intoxicated um, exists so far. So we will talk about these developments now with Allison Martin, co-founder of Cannabis Wire, which reports on marijuana policy and the industry. She is also an adjunct professor at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. Allison, always good to have you. Welcome back to WNYC. Thanks so much for having me again. Love being here. Can you explain more first about who exactly President Biden pardoned? Yeah, so it's um, it's not actually going to affect as many folks, I think, as some might have hoped, but it's about 6,500 people convicted of uh, simple possession at the federal level. And who gets convicted of federal marijuana possession? Aren't most people arrested for that, caught by local police, so it's a state or local crime, not federal? There are actually a lot of folks at the state level as well. Um, so there are quite a few folks, you know, according to the last prisoner project, there are about 3,000 people convicted of higher level offenses um, who remain in federal prisons and up to 30,000 who are um, still in prison in, in several states. The New York and New Jersey laws, I believe, include expungement provisions. Maybe they all do. Is expungement different than a pardon? I know you're not a lawyer. Do you happen to know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's good to note that I'm not a lawyer. Um, Yeah, so expungements essentially, you know, poof, the record disappears. So if someone's applying for a job, you know, a person doesn't have to check that box. Um, With a pardon, the person has to note that, but they can say that they've been pardoned. Um, And, you know, this is sort of semantics, but they're different processes, right? Like pardons are granted by the executive branch of government. Um, Expungement processes are generally uh, judicial. So from the way you just described it, it sounds like expungement is better than a pardon because like if you're applying for a job or something, you don't even have to mention it with a pardon. If I heard you right, you do have to mention it, but say you're pardoned. Well, they're just they're they're different um, and they apply to different folks. And it, it, it comes down to basically um, who or which entity has the power to go about it. Um, and really, the main thing is that, um, you know, the process of removing or, um, you know, lessening the effect of cannabis convictions as a whole, um, it removes barriers for folks. Right. Like if somebody has um, a cannabis conviction, 
Um, you know, it, it's tougher to get a job. It's it's tougher to secure housing. You know, there are all these barriers that can build up over time. And really what it's about as a whole is, you know, e easing up some of those barriers, removing them or lessening them and getting folks back out into, you know, an easier way to, to sort of build their lives up. I think we have um, Fred in Brooklyn on the line who is going to talk about a federal marijuana charge in his life. Fred, you're on WNYC. Thank you so much for calling in. Hey, Brian, how's it going? Good. Um, so, yeah, I do. I, I had a, when I was 19 years old, I was arrested and convicted. Um, I had to plead guilty to a lesser charge to a mis misdemeanor. Um, but that was 17 years ago. Um, I'm a white male, and I 100% am certain that um, me being able to plead down this charge um, was, in fact, because of my race and my age, um, and that if I was a person of color, I think that I, I would have. Um, yeah, so you think um, white privilege, the perception of you as a young white person, um, helped you be able to plead down to a misdemeanor. Was that a federal charge? It was a federal charge, yeah. It was in Virginia. At a, it was an all-white courtroom, federal misdemeanor, um, possession of a controlled substance, marijuana. But if you're comfortable saying, um, how did you wind up getting arrested on federal charges as opposed to Virginia law, where I'm sure it was also illegal? Because I, I was um, caught in possession of the cannabis in, on federal property in Virginia. Ah, there you go. So how do you yeah. feel seeing this sweeping pardon come from the White House? So, it, I mean, it was a huge emotional thing for me. Um, this my charge was 17 years ago. I completely turned my life around since then. I've gone to grad school. I own my own company. Um, but without that, you know, without that second chance, I would be in the same boat as a whole lot of people where, um, you know, it's doing jail time. I luckily got off with almost no consequences except for a small fine. Um, but that second chance for me really helped me, but I still had to jump through a whole bunch of hoops applying to grad school. It comes up, applying to any jobs. Um, it has come up. I work with children now, so I've had to be fingerprinted, and I have mm -hmm. to um, I've had to explain this. I've had to get the letters from the court to show that it was a nonviolence and 17 years ago, and I haven't gotten in trouble since. So it, all these minor inconveniences um, and embarrassments are, are nothing compared to what a lot of people have gone through. So now with this pardon, supposedly, I don't know exactly how it works. Um, I think it's a great, it's a great step forward because uh, a cannabis charge, marijuana charge, should not ruin somebody's life. Fred, thank you for your story, and thank you for seeing yourself kind of in a big uh, social context and, and not just as an individual. I appreciate that, and I appreciate your call and being able to, you know, willing to talk about this on, on the radio, which I'm sure is not easy for you. Um, and Allison, that was, that was quite a story in a number of ways. One way was here was this guy who, as he describes it, was in sort of the mildest circumstance of a federal marijuana conviction, he was able to plea, plead it down to a misdemeanor. Um, feels like he got relative leniency uh, for being white, and yet he's had to jump through all those hoops 
with jobs and other things, grad school, as he described it, with even that. So that's really an example, I guess, uh, if we extrapolate out to everybody else in his circumstances and treated more harshly by, by the government of what a simple marijuana possession conviction can do to somebody's life. Yeah, you know, the hoops are different person to person, but, you know, there's no question that, um, you know, these charges, um, you know, they they directly equate um, many hoops that people need to jump through. And there's also no question that there's a racial element to cannabis charges because, you know, the ACLU has um, found in their there was a watershed report, you know, more than a decade ago that found that while black and white people consume cannabis at similar rates, black people were almost four times as likely um, to have their consumption result in a, a cannabis related charge. Um, and, you know, it's also without question that, you know, typically uh, white folks have are better resourced when it comes to navigating these hoops. Um, so, yeah, that was a really illuminating, illuminating story. Um, I'm, I'm glad he called in. Do you happen to know the racial breakdown of the 6,500 or so people who President Biden's pardon applies to? I don't. I haven't seen that data yet. Um, going on to another part of what the president announced, can you explain what he said about cannabis as a Schedule One drug and what that means? Yeah, so Biden asked that the process to review the Schedule One status begin. Um, so basically, essentially what that means is, um, you know, Biden's asked the Attorney General and the Health and Human Services Secretary to review cannabis's Schedule One status. Um, you know, the FDA is going to conduct a scientific review, make recommendations to the DEA. You know, there are really important distinctions between rescheduling and descheduling, though. So if cannabis is rescheduled, um, but still scheduled, um, it will be treated more like a like a pharmaceutical, but importantly, it will acknowledge the medical use of cannabis. Um, if cannabis is descheduled, it could be treated uh, more similarly to alcohol or tobacco, which obviously I think um, you know many folks in the cannabis industry would would prefer. So alcohol is not treated as a drug in the sense that would be regulated by the Food and Drug Administration. Correct. It's just treated as a product. Correct. And so did the president specify whether he wanted cannabis to be descheduled, like alcohol, or rescheduled, still put it in a category of, of drug, like a pharmaceutical, but a different category than it's in now? So this is really interesting. There's only so much that the president can do himself. You know, a lot of folks were like, well, why can't he just legalize? And, you know, he can't unilaterally just make these moves. Right. So, um, you know, President Biden can't directly remove cannabis from the Controlled Substances, Controlled Substances Act himself, but he can direct, um, you know, the appropriate officials to do so. Um, you know, he, he did, however, um, campaign on, uh, you know, a plank, you know, he essentially promised to decriminalize cannabis and automatically expunge cannabis convictions. Um, you know, his announcement last week was a huge, huge announcement. It was, um, you know, the most significant announcement about cannabis from a president ever. Um, but, it, you know, he walked toward his campaign promise. He didn't quite do what he pledged. Um, you have an article on Cannabis Wire headline reactions to Biden's cannabis announcement pour in. Were yes. there some common themes? Yeah, there are a lot of common themes. I mean, there was a lot of loud applause, um, you know, a lot of sort of 
finally, um, and a lot of support from cannabis regulators also, which, you know, caught my eye. And in states where cannabis is legal, there was a lot of, you know, we support President Biden in this effort. You know, there were a lot of folks essentially saying, um, you know, we're standing by to help in any way that we can. Um, you know, CANRA, the Cannabis Regulators Association, you know, there was there was a lot of support for this. It's it's not a controversial move that Biden made. Um, there are very few people in this country, I think, that believe that folks should be sitting in a prison for, uh, you know, a simple possession charge. Um, so that was, you know, by and large, a lot of the um, a lot of the reaction. You know, there was some reaction from folks within the cannabis industry that essentially said, um, you know, do more. Um, you know, President Biden could have um, issued, you know, wider pardons, for example. Um, and, you know, while there's only so much that President Biden himself can do um, himself alone, you know, he does obviously wield a lot of power and hold a lot of influence. Um, and he can sort of um, push and nudge, if you will, um, mm -hmm. folks in these federal positions to move. Um, so so I would say that those are sort of the, the broad stroke themes. Um, you know, there were, you know, as I mentioned, uh, you know, governors and some state um, members of Congress, um, uh, members of Congress and state lawmakers who essentially um, came out firmly opposed to the announcement and, you know, likened it alongside other substances, um, you know, as I mentioned, sort of, um, what as Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson noted. So um, there were some mixed bag responses, but by and large, there was a lot of support. If the federal government reschedules marijuana as something less than a Schedule One, like heroin, but regulated by the FDA, um, what would that do to the expanding industry of dispensaries I don't know why they call them dispensaries. They could just call them stores now that they're not just for medical purposes. But what would it do to that expanding industry if all of those products were suddenly regulated by the FDA? Well, that is uh, a rising, rumbling concern in the cannabis industry, right? Um, so if cannabis is rescheduled um, and, you know, sort of moved down in the, in the scheduling, um, you know, that could really throw the existing state level industries, um, you know, they're different state to state. There's this wide, vast patchwork quilt of cannabis laws, this grand experiment, right? Um, that could that could really throw things into disarray um, and really upend. Um, I think it could really upend things in a number of ways. And I think what a lot of people are thinking about is um, the extent to which entities like the FDA would regulate and how they would regulate cannabis and what that would mean as it trickles down to the state level. Um, there are a lot of questions when it comes to that. And that's sort of, um, you know, part of where my reporting is right now is kind of piecing together all of these different scenarios and what that would mean um, state by state, because the laws in different states are so different. Um, you know, there's no national standard for impairment. There's no national standard for testing for potency or pesticide. Um, there's no national standard for marketing and advertising. So, um, you know, any move at the federal level would, um, you know, force the implementation of those kinds of rules and regulations, which would then, you know, you have these state um, programs that have built these foundations, some of which, if you think about, you know, Colorado and Washington, they're, it's the 10 year anniversary now. Um, you know, ha ha those programs have been have been at it for quite some time now, and they would have to fit within this broader national yeah. federal framework. Well, if the FDA were to regulate marijuana 
um, if your reporting is up to this yet, how would that differ from the regulation that's already in effect in all these states? I know you said it's different from state to state, but I think they're regulating for content and quality already, right? Like for purity is one of the reasons that I think customers of um, the legal dispensaries like shopping there, even though it might be more expensive uh, than the black market, um, because there's some regulation for purity and contaminants. It's also labeled, um, like edibles are labeled, you know, this gummy is five milligrams of THC or whatever it is. So people know what they're getting. Those are similar to the kinds of things we see on drugs that are regulated by the FDA. So in what ways, if you know, are um, cannabis products not already being regulated that the FDA might start? Well, as of right now, the FDA isn't regulating cannabis at all. It's not regulated at the federal level. Um, what the industry right now is waiting for and consumers are um, guidelines that will you know, guide the future of the CBD industry. That's what's currently underway um, from, from the FDA. But you know, as far as national regulation of cannabis, that doesn't exist yet. You know, any further moves at the national level would kick that into motion. You know, um, what you are rightfully noting, though, Brian, is, you know, many, many states have um, statewide regulations for things like pesticides and molds and mildews and heavy metals and all that um, and potency like, you know, THC um, warning labels that go on things like edibles. Um, but, you know, at the federal level, that doesn't exist yet. So so this would really be creating a, a, a framework from from ground zero. Um, and that would be sort of what's to come. Allison, New York State's legalization law passed last year, to remind everybody, is supposed to result in 175, that's a number that I've seen, 175 dispensary licenses being granted by the state very soon. Predictions have been that the first ones would open for business around the end of this year. And social justice is supposed to be a criterion for prioritizing applicants, people who've been caught in the web of the criminal justice system uh, with respect to marijuana, but but have gone on to business careers despite that. How does your reporting indicate any of that is going? Yeah, so, I mean, where the rollout stands right now, um, 175, so that breakdown is 150 um, people, um, quote-unquote equity applicants, people with some kind of cannabis conviction that qualifies or somebody in their immediate family, like a you know spouse, um, or a parent. Um, and I think it's two years of business experience that would qualify somebody. And then there are 25 mm -hmm. uh, nonprofits um, that will be selected or up to 25 nonprofits that will be selected, um, which was the latest that I heard. And sort of where the rollout stands right now. So we're still waiting on a couple of uh, key announcements, one from the dormitory authority about where specifically the first adult use um, or recreational shops, the dispensaries will be located. And also, you know, from from regulators, from the Office of Cannabis Management about, um, you know, who specifically are the first batch of successful applicants. If I read correctly, these crops can't cross state lines. So any marijuana sold in New York State has to be grown in New York State. Uh, for people who've gone to uh, buy in New Jersey or Massachusetts in our listening area, uh, the, the crops had to be grown in, in those states. You can't bring a California strain that people might like uh, into this area, that kind of thing. Is that accurate? 
Yeah, so it's federally illegal, uh, technically, to, you know, uh, rent a zip car and, and drive to the Berkshires um, and bring it back to New York City. Um, and it's also federally illegal to, you know, grow cannabis in Pennsylvania to be sold um, in New York State. You know, I I believe that's eventually going to change, um, but it's going to require um, a change to federal law uh, to allow that for, you know, interstate commerce. Um, but yeah, there are plenty of folks, if you go to any shop in New Jersey or, um, you know, Massachusetts, you can see plates from all over the Northeast. Uh, yes, as and I remember we did a segment when Massachusetts first started a number of years ago, especially um, a dispensary or two in Great Barrington, which is so near the New York line, the closest place to New York City at that time, uh, that there were a lot of New York license plates seen in Great Barrington um, that year. So uh, now there's now there's New Jersey and Massachusetts and soon New York. The DWI tests, um, the New York Post reported that story of Hochul trying to fast track research on a meaningful roadside or a media test like there is for alcohol in driving. What do legal states do now? It's uh, also a little bit of a patchwork, but by and large, um, so I think Governor Hochul, I think there was uh, you know, a request for information to come up with a better um, impairment test. This is one of the thorniest policy areas for um, for cannabis policymakers because there's no national standards. So what the vast majority of states rely on is something called a DRE or a drug recognition expert, which is essentially um, an extra trained cop, like a police officer who has special training to detect cannabis impairment. Um, it's obviously up to the police officer's discretion. Um, it's not as, um, you know, accurate because it, it could, you know, there could be an element of human error involved too. Um, so, you know, without a national standard, like with alcohol, um, it leaves some room, as I mentioned, for error. Um, there are researchers at, I believe it's UCLA, who are developing um, uh, essentially a breathalyzer. But a breathalyzer even still wouldn't work in all cases because of things like edibles. And, you know, there's also that outstanding issue of the cannabis plant affecting two different people very differently based on things like um, tolerance, based on things like weight, whether somebody has eaten, um, whether somebody has even any real exposure to cannabis. So, you know, the impairment question um, is going to come up again and again, I think, until there's, you know, some sort of better solution, not just at the state level, but also the federal level. And this is also something that the Federal Department of Transportation is also thinking about. Allison Martin, co-founder of Cannabis Wire, which reports on marijuana policy and the industry. She is also an adjunct professor at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. Thanks for your reporting and thanks as always for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.